0: From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas.
1: I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Scheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Maddie Stump and Chris Guyvich. Maddie is an undergraduate environmental policy and analysis major who's currently working on a research project entitled Listening and Learning, Lessons from the Land. She's the first winner of the ICS Student Research Award. Chris is the Natural Resources Coordinator for the City of Bowling Green, an instructor at Bowling Green State University, and a BGSU alum. Welcome, Maddie and Chris. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for being with me. How did each of you get interested in thinking about different ideas of environmental stewardship?
0: I've always cared really deeply about the environment. Growing up, I spent a lot of time in my backyard or in my front yard or my neighbor's front yard pretending to make pizzas out of dirt and grass and just really spending more time outside than I did inside. I remember being called in for dinner and being called in to do homework rather than being told to get out and enjoy being outside. And that deep love and that deep connection to being outside that I experienced throughout my childhood made me really invested in protecting The environment. But when I first came to BGSU, I was actually a music performance student. So I didn't study the environment initially in college. But after my first year, decided that music was not the path for me and really rekindled that relationship with nature and that deep sense of connection and belonging that I felt in nature and have this strong desire to protect places that other people could have that similar experience of belonging and inclusion in the natural world. And that's how I found environmental policy. And I'm looking to continue this work in my future. What
1: about for you, Chris?
2: It started a long time ago when I was a little, little kid. And I spent a lot of time outside, very similar to Maddie. I was outside a lot. And the only rule was is that when my mom rang the bell, it was time to come in. And it was a big farm bell. And she would ring the bell. And no matter where you were, you needed to stop what you were doing. And it was really hard for me because I loved going out into the woods and building forts and, and digging trenches and making caves and, and lighting things on fire and just being like a typical kid and spending my time just being out around nature. I just enjoyed it so much much and I didn't even know why it, it wasn't a conscious kind of a thing it was it was there. We had a huge woods behind our house that was about a mile square. And that was my playground as, as I was a kid growing up. So I was able to kind of run around out there. My parents never worried about where I was, what I was doing when I was coming home. I just knew that when the bell rang, I needed to stop what I was doing and make my way back. But there was never a concern about my well-being or any of that when I was growing up being outside. So that sort of turned itself into um, going from, I guess, a vocation or an avocation to a vocation and turning it into something more. And, and by the time, I was headed off to college, I realized that I wanted to be a teacher in the environment. I felt that that was a really important way to share knowledge. Uh, There was a professor I had when I was at Hawking College, and uh, she was very good at kind of laying it down. She She taught us how to be an educator in the environment, but she said, it doesn't really matter how much you know and how much you have inside your head. If it never comes back out of your head to other people, then it's basically dead knowledge. And once it's dead knowledge, other people have to start from scratch. And I learned at that moment that being a teacher, taking that information, and being able to tell the story about that information was a really good way to hook somebody in, in the environment. And so hopefully over the past 30 or so years of being involved in the environment from when I was you know, a teenager myself, and, then, and now I've had the opportunity to really help other people kind of grab onto a, a reason to be in the outdoors.
1: What does it mean to you to have a relationship with land and with nature? Why is that important to you, Maddie?
0: I think in general, having a relationship with land, with nature, with the more than human or non-human world means caring about it. I think that's the fundamental level is having a deep sense of care and love for what is not human. And that relationship can look very different to a lot of people, but the commonality is that there's some sense of care or spiritual or religious affiliation connection or even a a recreation connection with the land, but that care of there's something that I get and then... Your relationship is a two-way street, so humans get something from nature, but then we also give. Part of that relationship is reciprocity to me, and that is what's really important about having a relationship with the land, is when you have reciprocity with nature, you can give as it's giving you. That makes it so easy to protect and conserve and be mindful of how we're using what is around us.
1: What about for you, Chris? Chris?
2: For me, it's a sensory experience and I want that sensory experience to be gained by others as well. So when I'm out in the forest environment or I'm out in a natural environment, I can't help but be in awe of where I am. But it's not just the sight of it, it's the feeling of it, the smell of it, how it envelops me when I get into the environment, get into the woods, get into the forest. I told someone recently that I spent a lot of my childhood immersing myself literally in the environment and I would come home head to toe in mud and my mother would stop me at the door and that was it You'd, she was like all right take your clothes off and get in the house and I'm like well but no just do it because you're a mess but that's how I interacted with the environment is that I became part of the environment and so it was more for me I mean Maddie used the word spiritual and I think that's a really great way to describe it for me it's maybe a combination of that a combination of me being a part of the environment and and not separating myself from it and that's where all the sensory awareness comes into it for me so i think it's it's kind of interesting i'll be out with a group of people and i'll say now over on your left you can see and i'm not even looking that direction but i had been a moment ago and there's a cooper's hawk and it's sitting in the tree and it's just and they're like how did you see that and i'm like well that's I don't know. I just did, and, and I've now been able to make a job out of it. So, um, so it's being aware of all of the things that are around you. Smell that. Touch this. You know. See what this is. How does this make you feel? You know. Is this? You know. Are these leaves? Do they smell good? Do they smell bad to you? I think that for a lot of people, nature is somewhat foreboding, and they're frightened of it. Um, if especially if they've not experienced it, like maybe Maddie and I have, they find themselves separating themselves to the more comforts of being inside a, a home as opposed to being in nature. And there's nothing about nature that frightens me. I, I enjoy it very, very much. I mean, there are things in nature that can be a little bit scary. Um, but for the most part, it, there's really nothing to be afraid of. And, and luckily, living in Northwest Ohio, We're in a great place to be because we don't have poisonous snakes. We don't have bears. We don't have things to really worry a whole lot about. So you can kind of put that on the back burner and really immerse yourself in the environment and not worry about being eaten by something.
1: Maddie, you've chosen to use oral history as a major feature of your research project. Can you explain how oral history is different from other forms of history or research and why you felt it was important for this project?
0: Oral history is in the most simplest terms someone's story that is recorded so it is recorded history told from the perspective of someone who has been in this situation or has had a really unique experience that's valuable to the historical record so It is a fairly recent field of history, uh, different than the traditional forms of historical scholarship that deal with written documentation and having a written record, and that is what we use to study what's happened in the past. Oral history takes that a step further and gets the experience right from the source. And so that is really important, in my eyes, for environmental history because— there's two facets of environmental history that make it make a piece of history environmental, and that is the human dimension, which a lot of people are surprised. Why is the human in environmental history? But the human dimension and the natural dimension, you can't separate them. We are integrally connected in every aspect of human life. There is nature. So environmental history brings these two seemingly different perspectives or experiences together. And in telling environmental history, there's certain forms of historical records that we can use. We can use pollen counts. We can use tree rings. uh, We can use journals. But you can also use the experiences of people who have really intimate connections with the land. And that's what this project aims to do. Through oral history, obtaining the stories of people who have deep ties with nature in their personal, professional lives and hearing not only how they have created those relationships, but what have they learned, what benefits have they received from having relationships to land that we can't really see in the historical record because the historical record doesn't show how the land speaks to us in our personal lives, in our professional lives, in our experiences. Oral history is the way to obtain how nature is speaking to the humans and the humans are conveying that story in the oral history interviews.
1: Maddie's research is about listening and learning from the land. So, Chris, what does that idea mean to you in your role as natural resources coordinator for the city of Bowling Green?
2: I think it's absolutely impossible for humans to separate themselves from the environment. And I think that over the many, many years of uh, particularly, you know, I can only draw on my my European american history background but if we go to europe europe europeans had an idea that the environment was something to be tamed something to be managed managed probably isn't even the right word subjugated i mean it had to be completely squashed and so that mindset came with our european ancestors to the american continents and when they came here they saw a lot of frightening, foreboding things that needed to be controlled. And whether that may have been the indigenous people that lived here or whether it was the indigenous animal life that was here, all of it needed to be controlled. And so we oftentimes, people said, well, how can you look at the environment? And I personally just can't take people away from it. It's impossible because humans have interacted with the environment as long as we've had opposable thumbs. And we have done things to the environment and not to be judgmental in any way. Our human ancestors have done things to the environment because that's what you did at the time they did it. That's just how you interacted with it. And so it's hard for us to kind of look back, and oftentimes I'll do talks on... The Great Black Swamp, where we live, and and what happened. And I'll start out with saying, oh, you know, at at one point or another, this was all swamp. It was giant oak trees that had never been cut down, and they could be a 1,000 years old. Who knows how old they were? And now they're all gone. And inevitably, someone in the audience will go, oh, and I'll say, now stop it right now. It is not our job to judge what our ancestors did to the environment. What our job is is to understand why they did what they did to the the environment and then learn from that process. We know that some of the things, many of the things that were done to the environment were not a good thing. But surprisingly, some of the things that were done to the environment should be done now and are not, like prescribed burns. And we're just getting back into prescribed burning right now in the past maybe 20, 30 years. And it's still a fairly, which is funny, a fairly new science that Native Americans and Native Australians and Native cultures throughout the world used fire. And because fire was suppressed, now we start seeing things like massive fires, particularly those in Australia, which were just horrific, But the native culture was not allowed to continue to burn as they had for thousands and thousands of years. And those plants, they evolved to accept fire as part of the way they live. And I just saw a picture, I believe it was yesterday, of the greening up of the areas in Australia. And I'm like, aha, well, there you go, folks. Those plants have adapted to fire. Things are going to green up in a short period of time. So we, we look at things sometimes like, oh, I can't believe that the Native Americans burned down most of the United States. Well, they burned it constantly. And uh, we have the, the historical record that that Maddie mentioned in journals. We use journals to see what's going on. And there's a really famous passage for Northwestern Ohioans where there were a group of uh, Native Americans that, like four guys on horses walking by. So we know horses. So it was a fairly recent in the in the grand scheme of things. And they walked by a group of pioneers and then later on they noticed smoke on the horizon and the prairie where these guys were all camping was now under, I'm completely engulfed in flames. This was Hull Prairie just up the road in Perrysburg, Ohio, not that long ago and not that far away.
1: Mm -hmm. Maddie, (gasps) Northwest Ohio is home to a diverse array of people, past and present. How are you trying to incorporate diverse voices in your project?
0: One of the things that... I have found in my preliminary research is that oral history emerged as a field to highlight voices that were marginalized in the historical records. So most of history is written by and about the predominant society, which is usually white and it's usually male. So in the people that I've selected or the people that I'm reaching out to for the oral history interviews for this project, I'm seeking out women in particular because uh, women are a marginalized group in historical records. I'm seeking out Native and Indigenous voices because we know that there were a lot of Indigenous tribal nations that used the resources in the Great Black Swamp they maybe didn't live within the swamp where Bee Gees currently uh, settled, but they lived on the outside and they came into the Great Black Swamp to obtain resources and food and medicinal plants. So I'm intending to interview someone of a tribal nation that has its roots in Northwest Ohio, so maybe the, the Wyandotte Nation or the Miami Nation. I really hope to highlight someone who is of a a Black, African-American, or another non-white racial or ethnic group. Because our current population in Bowling Green is so diverse, I'm really grateful that I have those diverse perspectives here that I can use and I can look at then the way that people of different identities also are interacting with the land in different or maybe similar ways and, and hopefully come to some kind of conclusion of different or similar ways that people are interacting with land in, in our home right now.
1: Great. Chris, could you tell us about your work in the restoration of Bowling Green's Park, such as Winter Garden, mm-hmm. and some of that custodianship of making a new generation of changes to the land?
2: Uh, Winter Garden Park has a long and and storied history and it it has been a number of different things prior to it becoming a park. Um, Most of the prairie that's there now was at one time for about 150 years was row crops. And at the time it would have been either corn or wheat. St. John's Woods many years ago was completely fenced off with metal fencing. Some of it still exists if you look really hard. We've tried to remove some of it, but we have left some for historical perspective as well. And if you look at it from the area, you'll see it's a very different area. The reason it's different is that was fenced off. It's always been a wood lot and it was fenced off for the production of hogs. This is all information, by the way, that I've gleaned from oral histories from people in our community who have come to me and they might be, you know, a gentleman maybe well up into his 80s saying, you know, I remember as a kid coming out here and there were hogs in here and you didn't want to mess with these hogs. I'm like, really, there's hogs? Well, that makes a lot of sense because as we look through that park, we see no trillium. Trillium is a very common plant in eastern woodlands, except in Winter Garden Park. It's also delicious because it doesn't have oxalic acid in it like the mayapples do and the the jack-in-the-pulpits do. Well, we have tons of jack in the pulpits and ton of mayapples. And all of those are still there as a remnant because maybe a hog would have tried it once, but they wouldn't have, have tried it after that because it burns your mouth. It would burn any mammal's mouth by eating it. There were oil wells there. You know that there was oil spillage there, I'm sure. And so there's probably a layer of oil in, in those particular areas. It was water wells for the city of Bowling Green at one point. It was a summer camp for kids at one point. So there's lots and lots of different things it was. By the time I came on the scene in 2000, when I uh, got the job as natural resources coordinator, one of my goals and one of the things we talked about when when I was getting the job was, how do we manage this area and remove or at least prescribe something for it? And that was just in the early days of discussions about prescribed burns, prescribed management. And when I took the staff of the Department of Natural Resources Division of Natural Areas and Preserves around on a tour, they were just dumbfounded at the number of non-native invasive species that were in that park. They were like, you guys are the poster child for what can go wrong. It's everywhere. And so We needed to decide, um, and we meaning the staff that I eventually hired, we sat down and talked about what is it that needs to go first? Like uh, they say, eating an elephant one bite at a time. Well, this was a huge elephant and we couldn't just go in and do a little dabbling here and a little dabbling there. We started with the most critical parts of the park, which we deemed St. John's Woods, and we started working there. And we began our efforts at removing as many or as much or all, in some cases, of the non-native invasives that were in that portion of the park. And when we did that and we went in sometimes barehanded, sometimes with a vengeance uh removing tatarian bush honeysuckle and privet and burning bush all of these were escapees from people's yards japanese barberry japanese honeysuckle asiatic bittersweet and it just went on and on and then of course garlic mustard which was four feet tall and and so thick you couldn't even walk through the stuff it was ridiculous
1: so what's your vision when <laughs> at what point will you feel like when do we know
2: we're done yeah <laughs> we're never going to be done or what is
1: the or what are you working towards i
2: see we are actually we, we 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 had to set up a goal, and our staff set up the goal. We were looking at pre-contact with European cultures, and so that would have been roughly in this area, would have been about 400 years ago with the French. They would have been through here, the Spanish had laid claim to this area, but I doubt highly that they ever came through this area, but the French certainly did. And then after that, the British, and after that, the American cultures that were moving from the East. Uh, to the western part so what would we have seen 400 years ago what would have been here with the possible exceptions of elk and bison which you know i'd be happy to reintroduce those but i'm pretty sure the neighbors wouldn't like it but uh there were you know megafauna aside we would probably do our best to make it look as much like it looked when our pioneer ancestors would have been coming through the area it's going to be difficult and in some cases and you know, we have this this kind of romanticized view of what the woods looks like or what it should look like and we read a lot of first hand accounts and like oh it was beautiful and it was pristine and it was never never touched by human hands that's hogwash native americans as long as they've been in the united states or what we call the united states now have been manipulating the land and that is that so when the pilgrims for instance came and said oh god hath bestowed upon us these beautiful fields well those fields fields. Fields had been managed for hundreds of years as fields. And so it's not like there was nothing going on prior to the arrival of of these folks. So so we had to kind of pick a date. And um, I had a a board member once that said, why are you doing this? And I said, well... You know how when you go to the car show downtown and somebody's got a 1967 Mustang and it's really kind of cool, but it's really kind of out of but, well, that's kind of what we're doing. We're, we're trying to restore something to a point where we can say, this is what it looked like back then and use it as a historical reference point, museum-like, but, but at the same time, a living museum.
1: Hmm. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. Consider the following
2: you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu.
1: So Maddie, your project is about connecting research to the community. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you're hoping that the research that you're doing can actually be of use within our local parks?
0: I have two end products for this research, or rather two end community-based outcomes. And the first one is to deposit this collection of oral history, both the interview, the recorded interview, and the transcript, as well as a short environmental history, a a written environmental history using resources that I have found, all of that to be deposited in the Jerome Library Center for Archival Collections. So I've been working with the folks over there to make sure I have the proper documentation and the proper technology stuff to make sure that those records can be housed there, So that the community and guests and students can go and use those resources for the future and do their own scholarly research or just do some some rabbit hole jumping or digging on the history of this community. The second community-based final product of this research is a physical sign that's going to be placed at Winter Garden Park. So it's going to feature a little bit of the oral history that I conducted of the park naturalists and of the park itself. And it will accompany another community-based project that I did last semester with some peers, uh, an interpretive trail of sorts of focusing on St. John's Woods, but really the park as a whole, this really rich history of Winter Garden and St. John's Preserve. And that sign itself will feature quotes and really detailed, specific lessons that other people have learned from the park and that sign will have a QR code that will link to the BGSU history department blogs page. And so there'll be an accompanying blog where there'll be more information about the transcripts and, uh, and some recordings of the the interviews themselves, some short clips and then a link to the center for archival collections where, where this oral history collection will be housed. So I'm really hoping that this project gives members of our community an opportunity to learn the stories of others and to learn how others are connecting to land so that they can similarly make connections to the natural parks and natural areas within Bowling Green to develop a sense of pride and ownership of the rich parks and the rich history of this place that we all live. Okay.
1: Chris, how did your time at BGSU impact your career?
2: I'm one of those people who came to Bowling Green twice and and then decided not to leave. So I I think that it impacted me in ways I don't even know. (laughs) But um, sometimes, you know, you go to a place and it sort of feels right. And when I came as an undergrad here um, to finish out my degree that I'd started at Hawking, Uh, So I had two years there. I came here for three years. And I initially came here as a psychology major. I didn't even take one psychology course before I realized, no, that's not where I wanted to go. Um, So I ended up in biology, which was okay, um, but I felt like there was something more. And then I switched to education and that's where I ended up even going further, getting my degree in recreation. I didn't even know you could do that. When I was here, I thought, well, I'm going to be stuck in a classroom for the rest of my life and I don't want to have to wear a tie every day and and uh, kind of really dumb reasons to not go into a career in teaching. But still, I thought I want to teach, but I want to teach in a non-traditional way setting. And so that's how I ended up in Bowling Green. I went out into the world for five years after my undergraduate degree, became either enlightened or frightened and came back to Bowling Green for my master's degree. And then I got a job working with Wood County Parks as an intern. And that's really where it started is that I became very comfortable. Having grown up in Northwest Ohio, I always knew Bowling Green existed. Um, I'm originally from Sylvania, just west of Toledo. So you know, my high school played Bowling Green High School in football. Not that I was there other than watching from the stands. But, um, you know, it was like, okay, Bowling Green's just far enough away from mom and dad, but still far enough away for me to be independent. And that was how I kind of looked at it. After graduate school, everything went very well, and I really seemed to enjoy uh, what I was doing, um, doing the educational thing. And then I became a board member for Bowling Green Parks and Recreation. I wasn't even on the board for a year, and they came up with this position called Natural Resources Coordinator. And I was like, "Um, I really, this is a great, sounding job. I think I want it. So I had to step off the board, apply for the position, and I got it, which was really great. And I was the first person in the history of the city of Bowling Green to be the natural resources coordinator and manage natural resources within the city. I was the first person on the board who had a background in natural sciences as well. And everybody up until then was either aquatics or sports or active sport, active play, active recreation. And then here's this nature guy coming along and he sees things completely differently than than Everyone else does a different type of recreation. So I was able to couple recreation with education. And, and so that's how I kind of ended up here. Great. I don't know if I answered the I question exactly like you I, I, think, asked you did. It, but I think you did.
1: <laughs> Maddie, what advice do you have for other students who might be interested in doing interdisciplinary and applied research? Do
0: it. <laughs> uh, it can be really daunting as an undergraduate student to be doing big research projects, but there are so many resources here at BGSU that support students in their endeavors and their passions and their pursuits of life changing and community changing experiences. And to any student anywhere in the world, there are those resources. So seek out those resources and take advantage of them because this kind of institutional support for both financially and mentorships and advisors, that doesn't happen everywhere. And I think that that's one thing that makes BGSU a really special place is that there's so many different areas around campus, academic and non-academic, that want students to succeed and put all of their a full faith effort to to do whatever they have to so students can succeed at these big interdisciplinary projects. Even a single faculty member, if there's one person that you feel a particular connection to because you had a really great class with them or because they're your academic advisor, they know other people who can connect you. So while well, my primary advisor for this project is Dr. Emil Karchelou in the history department, I've also worked with other history department professors and I've worked with some of my environmental studies professors because Dr. Chalou has been able to connect me and because of other resources on campus that have been able to connect me and I wouldn't this project wouldn't be interdisciplinary without them because my program's interdisciplinary but it doesn't include every discipline. So to include a little bit of ethnic studies and identity-based research, to include the history, to have that solid background of the environment, and then to also include community-based research and advocacy and support, these are all things that I couldn't have done without those additional connections on campus. So seek out those connections Use the resources that we have here because the world is is endless. There are so many possibilities if you utilize the opportunities you have.
1: I think it's really interesting, Chris, in you telling your story of kind of your winding path and you, Maddie, in your research process, that you're both really talking about taking risks and trying things out. And you sort of don't know what opportunity may present itself. Do you have any additional advice you'd give to young people who are interested in working on environmental issues or in trying to imagine a future that doesn't feel like wearing a tie if that's not what they want to do every day.
2: First of all, I think that you need to, if you're looking into going into the environment in any aspect of it, that you need to go into it with, first of all, an open mind. And, And second of all, in my personal opinion, I think sometimes the media throws gas on a fire and sometimes it's best to just do your own research and not be an alarmist. I mean, yes, it's very important that we learn what we can about what's going on in the environment, but there's such a big story. And with Maddie's research and the interviews that she's doing, this is important because people did what they did for a reason. They didn't just willy-nilly go out and say, we're going to destroy the forest today. They were cutting the forest down because they were farmers. That was what they did. And so it's important to go at it again with without judgment, but with an understanding that the reason he Humans do what they do to the environment is because they had good reason that may be historically based. So we have to go back in the history, see what was going on at the time, understand, be non judgmental, and then look toward a future of like, okay, let's learn from our past, but now let's move toward the future. You know, we're continually learning right now, and I always say that science is never settled. I, I heard a politician say that once science is settled. And I'm like, how could science be settled? Science. The the very nature of science is that it's unsettled and we wouldn't have a need for scientists if it were all figured out. We need to continue to figure it out. And there's people, you know, it's it's heartening to hear somebody like Maddie with the enthusiasm she has to be able to, I'm passing the torch here in a few years to the next generation of people that are going to hopefully pick up where I left off but I'm not expecting them to do exactly what I did. There's new research and new thoughts and new processes and new educational techniques. All of this is coming our way. It's not gonna be the same as it was. And so I will be kind of, keeping a close eye on what the next person is doing at Winter Garden, but for the most part, I have to step back and let them do what they do. I just hope that they would also consider using people like myself as a resource. Don't forget that we do have a wealth of of institutional and hands-on knowledge that we want to share. And again, that's where, where people like Maddie come in, do that research and interview those people because they do know they saw it happening, or they have, at the very least, they'll have an opinion about what to do next. So, the best advice is go into it with an open mind. Go into it with the expectation that you're going to do research for the rest of your career, that it's never settled. There's always more to learn. Every day, every single day I go to work, I learn something new. And uh, if I stop learning something new, Um, I'm pretty sure it's time to move on or maybe, you know, the Cosmos had other plans for me and they moved me on (laughs) unwillingly.
1: (laughs) Maddie and Chris, thank you so much for joining me today on the Big Ideas podcast. Maddie's research was supported by the new ICS Student Research Award, which was funded by generous donors to the BGSU One Day Fundraising Campaign. For more information on applying for a student research award or supporting the award, please visit bgsu.edu slash ICS. You can find the Big Ideas podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Our producers are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza with Sound Engineering Today by Marco Mendoza. Research assistance was provided by Courtney Keeney with editing by Stevie Shorek. This conversation was recorded in the Stanton Audio Recording Studio in the Michael and Sarah Culeen Center at Bowling Green State University.